Now I'm going to take you through some of the contents of Chapter 5, which is entitled Communication and Language, or, as we sometimes say, Linguistic Anthropology. So we'll begin with language, and, or excuse me, begin with communication, and um, language is just a form of communication, although it is the most complex form of communication uh, we know of. Also, the fact that we don't use only language uh, to communicate, we actually use facial expressions of emotions and other sorts of bodily gestures. Then we'll turn to the origins of language, a uh, very difficult topic. Uh, we have very little information on this issue. And then to uh, linguist, excuse me, descriptive linguistics, which will deal with um, phonology, morphology, and grammar. The next topic will be historical linguistics, which will talk about um, language change over time. And then we'll turn to the process of linguistic divergence, uh, which has to do with things like um, isolation and geographic spread. And then we turn to the relationship between language and culture, that is, how language may affect how we conceptualize the world, such that it's perhaps possible that people speaking different languages see the world a little bit differently. And then we'll turn to the ethnography of speaking, which is sometimes called sociolinguistics, sometimes psycholinguistics, and it focuses on how language is used in everyday life. And finally, we'll end up with uh, writing and literacy. Um, writing probably only began about 6,000 years ago, and it did not become widespread uh, in any population until relatively recently in human history. Uh, communication. The word communication comes from the Latin verb communicare, uh, to impart, to share, to make common. And all, many species um, communicate, and humans not only communicate verbally, but they also communicate non-verbally, and we'll give you some examples of that. And they'll also briefly talk about non-human communication. Here we have some photographs taken by Paul Ekman, that's E-C-K-M-A-N, and it's uh, giving examples of facial expressions of emotion. What he did was to go to Highland, New Guinea, and uh, study a people there, the Fore, F-O-R-E, who at the time of his study, and you can see uh, them in the uh, right-hand side of the um, set of photographs, uh, had no contact with um, the Western world. What he did was to take photos of them expressing various um, emotions, and we can see the universal set here, anger, fear, surprise, happiness, disgust, sadness. And then he had um, people from the Bay Area uh, take a look at those photographs and classify the kinds of emotions being expressed. And then he took uh, pictures of people in the Bay Area on the left-hand side there and across the bottom, again expressing uh, emotions through their face. And what he discovered was that um, each group, the foray and the Bay Area residents of, um, of California, could accurately interpret the emotions being expressed, which suggests that uh, and provides quite a bit of evidence for the fact that um, facial expressions of emotion are a universal language uh, and essentially characteristic of all humans. One thing I'd like to add about the previous slide is that um, even children who are born congenitally blind have the same ability to express those facial expressions of emotion even though they've never seen a face, which means that these 
this form of communication is inborn. Now we're going to turn to the origins of language, um, and basically the origins of spoken language are unknown. We try to get a feel about um, the origins of language by looking at Creole languages, and this is a situation where um, cultures come in contact, children grow up speaking both languages, and they end up speaking a Creole or a mixture of the two languages. And Creoles, interestingly, have a set of characteristics um, in common and uh, could be regarded as a kind of basic or primitive language if we're looking at the kind of uh, formation or evolution of language. What's interesting about the children's acquisition of speech is no matter <coughs> what language a child is beginning to learn, they pass through the same sorts of phases of linguistic competence at about the same ages. And so the way in which children learn language seems to be universal. There is like a specific uh, universal child's grammar, sometimes called a pivot grammar, that is common to um, all children. And so through the study of Creole languages and children's acquisition of language, we're getting a better feel for the kind of psychological and biological underpinnings of language. The textbook spends uh, a good amount of time on descriptive languages, and the field of linguistics is divided into three main areas, phonology, morphology, and syntax. One crude way of trying to understand these different levels of analogist, analogy is to think of phonology as dealing with letters, morphology, dealing with words, and syntax, dealing with the relationship between words. Sometimes we use the word grammar to refer to syntax, uh, but linguistic linguists don't use this kind of characterization. Uh, but phonology has to do with the kind of individual sound units that uh, go into a particular language. Morphology has to do with how these individual sound units are combined into uh, with one another to create words that are understood. And syntax has to do with the relationship of words one to the other. In English, uh, we tend to think of syntax as word order because we have a kind of grammar uh, where word order is very important. But there are some languages, for example, we call highly inflected, I-N-F-L-E-C-T-E-D, languages such as Latin, where <coughs> word order is not as critical. Uh, word endings kind of um, let you know whether a particular word is a subject, an object, an indirect object, uh, etc. And so these are the three fields of um, uh, descriptive linguistics, phonology, morphology, and syntax. We're now going to deal with historical languages or how languages change over time, and we'll talk a bit about language families and uh, culture history to give you an idea of what sorts of things that historical linguists study. Here we have a schematic of uh, or historical reconstruction of Indo-European languages and we see across the top major linguistic groups and what we demonstrate here is that at one point in time there was a language that existed about uh, maybe 7,000 years ago called Proto-Indo-European and it originated um, in, the, in, in West Asia, uh, we think, and then as people moved out of that area and spread to different parts of the world, they began to separate, and as a consequence, uh, the languages they spoke began to vary independently, 
and further spreading over greater time led to uh, a greater and greater number of languages that we see across the, um, the bottom of these charts. And so um, a lot of languages in the world, uh, whether they originate in Africa or Asia, can be placed in charts like this that show how the various languages are related to one another in terms of a kind of uh, phylogenetic or evolutionary tree. There are a variety of factors that lead to linguistic divergence, and we can talk about how language, uh, how particular language in a particular place changes through time. If we look at Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which were written around 1380, and we looked at the left-hand side, the original, uh, you can only make out perhaps um, uh, every other word compared to the modern uh, translation. And so this is an example of um, divergence through time, and uh, if you were back in the 1380s, it would take you some time to get used to the expressions and the words and things of that nature. And so this is a good example of um, how quickly, you know, we're here we're only talking about maybe um, 700 years or so, uh, language can change uh, in the same place just simply through time. Uh, in the process of linguistic uh, diversions, um, isolation is a factor that brings about divergence. And so when people speaking a common language move to uh, different parts of, of an area, they speak less between groups and more within, and so changes in one group really aren't communicated to other groups. Uh, think of it about as a, a gene pool where population initially uh, was established, they separated, they didn't exchange much in the way of genetic material, and you get the development of new species, and likewise we get the development of dialectical variants in various um, places. Again, uh, when contact occurs, then resemblance becomes stronger and stronger. And so isolation and, and contact are important factors that determine whether a language uh, will continue to diverge or will remerge into more common language. Now we're going to turn to the relationship between language and culture. So we'll focus on uh, cultural influences on language, as described in your text, and also linguistic influences on culture. Now we're going to turn to the relationship between language and culture described in your text. And so we want to begin with cultural influences on language. And we know that things that uh, become culturally significant tend to find their way into uh, a language. So our basic uh, words for colors, plants, and animals. Uh, what's interesting in this kind of area studies, especially in terms of how people classify plants and animals, uh, it turns out that um, in many, many cultures, they have a kind of hierarchical mode of uh, living thing classifications. Uh, we use the terms like uh, trees and shrubs and things of that nature to characterize the natural world of plants into bigger and smaller and um, species, and we also find this in other languages. Uh, another way in which culture can influence language is grammar. For example, uh, if you take uh, Spanish or French, um, because of the importance of recognizing status, uh, we find we have familiar versus formal forms of the verb uh, you, and whereas this doesn't uh, exist in, in English. Uh, but since denoting relative status and rank is important in these cultures, we find that it's reflected in particular grammatical forms of the pronoun you, 
uh, that um, that are used in those languages. So it's a good example of how um, culture can influence the very grammar of a language. The next section of the text takes you to the relationship between language and culture in terms of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And that is the position that language is a force in its own right and it affects how individuals in a society perceive and conceive of reality. So um, in terms of our way in which we cognitively perceive the world, the argument here is that language prevents a, presents a kind of a template or a way of seeing the world. Uh, quite a bit of research has been done on this topic. It is a bit controversial. Uh, but um, there is, you know, clear evidence that um, uh, the language you use, to some extent, how much is unclear, uh, affects uh, how we perceive reality. The next section of the text deals with the ethnography of speaking, and um, so and in the the specific field there is sociolinguistics, which is concerned with the ethnography of speaking or cultural and subcultural patterns of speech variation in different social contexts. Uh, what this means is that we alter our speech depending on who we're talking to. Uh, we talk to a child in one way, we talk to someone who is older and perhaps has higher status or in a position of authority over us in another um, manner, and we talk to our friends still yet in another manner. So it has to do with the kinds of what we call sometimes code switching that goes on uh, when we speak and how our patterns of speech uh, indicate uh, particular kinds of social relationships that we have uh, with um, individuals. And again on the ethnography of speaking, um, the terms social status and speech, gender differences in speech, multilingualism and code switching all deal with how we dynamically employ language and vary language depending on the social context, depending on who we are, depending who we're talking to, and things of that nature. As I mentioned in the first slide, um, the next section of the uh, text deals with um, writing and literacy. Written language dates back only about 6,000 years ago. Uh, and writing and written records have become increasingly important through time, as you all know. And literacy is a major goal of most countries. And so um, the textbook deals with the kind of development of written languages, which was largely handled by the elite in states, uh, used to record things such as the collection of taxes. And then later on, um, religious texts were one of the, among the first texts to um, to develop, and then um, language slowly began to spread to the uh, to the masses, until today, where uh, literacy is a critical factor in the development of any nation, uh, or for the advancement of any individual in any nation.